The Evolution of Modesty, Part 1, Section 1, of Studies in the Psychology of Sex, Volume 1, by Havelock Ellis. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. The Evolution of Modesty, Part 1, Section 1. Modesty, which may be provisionally defined as an almost instinctive fear, prompting to concealment and usually centering around the sexual processes, while common to both sexes, is more peculiarly feminine, so that it may almost be regarded as the chief secondary sexual character of women on the psychical side. The woman who is lacking in this kind of fear is lacking also in sexual attractiveness to the normal and average man. The apparent exceptions seem to prove the rule, for it will generally be found that women who are, not immodest, for immodesty is more closely related to modesty than mere negative absence of the sense of modesty, but without that fear, which implies the presence of a complex emotional feminine organization to defend, only make a strong sexual appeal to men, who are themselves lacking in the complementary masculine qualities. As a psychical secondary sexual character of the first rank, it is necessary, before any psychology of sex can be arranged in order, to obtain a clear view of modesty. The immense importance of feminine modesty in creating masculine passion must be fairly obvious. I may, however, quote the observations of two writers who have shown evidence of insight and knowledge regarding this matter. Casanova describes how, when at Bern, he went to the baths, and was, according to custom, attended by a young girl, whom he selected from a group of bath attendants. She undressed him, proceeded to undress herself, and then entered the bath with him, and rubbed him thoroughly all over, the operation being performed in the most serious manner and without a word being spoken. When all was over, however, he perceived that the girl had expected him to make advances, and he proceeds to describe and discuss his own feelings of indifference under such circumstances. Though without gazing on the girl's figure, I had seen enough to recognize that she had all that a man can desire to find in a woman, a beautiful face, lively and well-formed eyes, a beautiful mouth with good teeth, a healthy complexion, well-developed breasts, and everything in harmony. It is true that I had felt that her hands could have been smoother, but I can only attribute this to hard work. Moreover, my Swiss girl was only eighteen, and yet I remained entirely cold. What was the cause of this? That was the question that I asked myself. It is clear, wrote Stendhal, that three parts of modesty are taught. This is, perhaps, the only law born of civilization which produces nothing but happiness. It has been observed that birds of prey hide themselves to drink, because, being obliged to plunge their heads in the water, they are at that moment defenseless. After having considered what passes at Otaheite, I can see no other natural foundation for modesty. Love is the miracle of civilization. Among savage and very barbarous races, we find nothing but physical love of a gross character. It is modesty that gives to love the aid of imagination, and in so doing imparts life to it. Modesty is very early taught to little girls by their mothers, and with extreme jealousy, one might say, by esprit de corps. They are watching in advance over the happiness of the future lover. 
to a timid and tender woman there ought to be no greater torture than to allow herself in the presence of a man something which she thinks she ought to blush at i am convinced that a proud woman would prefer a thousand deaths a slight liberty taken on the tender side by the man she loves gives a woman a moment of keen pleasure but if he has the air of blaming her for it or only of not enjoying it with transport an awful doubt must be left in her mind for a woman above the vulgar level there is then everything to gain by very reserved manners the play is not equal she hazards against a slight pleasure or against the advantage of appearing a little amiable the danger of biting remorse and a feeling of shame which must render even the lover less dear an evening passed gaily and thoughtlessly without thinking of what comes after is dearly paid at this price the sight of a lover with whom one fears that one has had this kind of wrong must become odious for several days can one be surprised at the force of a habit the slightest infractions of which are punished with such atrocious shame as to the utility of modesty it is the mother of love as to the mechanism of the feeling nothing is simpler the mind is absorbed in feeling shame instead of being occupied with desire desires are forbidden and desires lead to actions it is evident that every tender and proud woman and these two things being cause and effect naturally go together must contract habits of coldness which the people whom she disconcerts call prudery the power of modesty is so great that a tender woman betrays herself with her lover rather by deeds than by words the evil of modesty is that it constantly leads to falsehood it thus happens that as adler remarks the sexual impulse in women is fettered by an inhibition which has to be conquered a thin veil of reticence shyness and anxiety is constantly cast anew over a woman's love and her wooer in every act of courtship has the enjoyment of conquering a fresh and oft won woman an interesting testimony to the part played by modesty in affecting the union of sexes is furnished by the fact to which attention has often been called that the special modesty of women usually tends to diminish though not to disappear with the complete gratification of the sexual impulses this may be noted among savage as well as among civilized women the comparatively evanescent character of modesty has led to the argument that modesty pudore is possessed by women alone men exhibiting instead a sense of decency which remains at about the same level of persistency throughout life viazzi on the contrary following sergi argues that men are throughout more modest than women but the point he brings forward though often just scarcely justify his conclusion while the young virgin however is more modest and shy than the young man of the same age the experienced married woman is usually less so than her husband and in a woman who is a mother the shy reticences of virginal modesty would be rightly felt to be ridiculous she has put off a sexual livery that has no longer any important part to play in life and would indeed be inconvenient and harmful just as a bird loses its sexual plumage when the pairing season is over madame Celine renews in an elaborate study of the psychological sexual differences between men and women also believes that modesty is not really a feminine characteristic modesty she argues is masculine shame attributed to women for two reasons first 
because man believes that woman is subject to the same laws as himself. Secondly, because the course of human evolution has reversed the psychology of the sexes, attributing to women the psychological results of masculine sexuality. This is the origin of the conventional lies, which by a sort of social suggestion have intimidated women. They have, in appearance at least, accepted the rule of shame imposed on them by men, but only custom inspires the modesty for which they are praised. It really is an outrage to their sex. This reversal of psychological laws has, however, only been accepted by women with a struggle. Primitive woman, proud of her womanhood, for a long time defended her nakedness which ancient art has always represented. And in the actual life of the young girl today, there is a moment when, by a secret activism, she feels the pride of her sex, the intuition of her moral superiority, and cannot understand why she must hide its cause. At this moment, wavering between the laws of nature and social conventions, she scarcely knows if nakedness should or should not affright her. A sort of confused atavistic memory recalls to her a period before clothing was known, and reveals to her, as a paradisical ideal, the customs of that human epoch. In support of this view, the authoress proceeds to point out that the decollet constantly reappears in feminine clothing, never in male, that missionaries experience great difficulty in persuading women to cover themselves, that, while women accept with facility an examination by male doctors, men cannot force themselves to accept examination by a woman doctor, etc. It cannot be said that Madame Renaud's arguments will all bear examination, if only on the grounds that nakedness by no means involves absence of modesty, but the point of view which she expresses is one which usually fails to gain recognition, though it probably contains an important element of truth. It is quite true, as Stenhall said, that modesty is very largely taught. From the earliest years, a girl child is trained to show a modesty, which she quickly begins really to feel. This fact cannot fail to strike anyone who reads the histories of pseudo-hermaphroditic persons, really males, who have from infancy been brought up in the belief that they are girls, and who show, and feel, all the striking reticence and blushing modesty of their supposed sex. But when the error is discovered, and they are restored to their proper sex, this is quickly changed, and they exhibit all the boldness of masculinity. At the same time, this is only one thread in the tangled skein with which we are here concerned. The mass of facts which meets us when we turn to the study of modesty in women cannot be dismissed as a group of artificially imposed customs. They gain rather than lose in importance if we have to recognize that the organic sexual demands of women, calling for coyness and courtship, lead to the temporary suppression of another feminine instinct of opposite, though doubtless allied, nature. But these somewhat conflicting, though not really contradictory statements, serve to bring out the fact that a woman's modesty is often an incalculable element. The woman who, under some circumstances and at some times, is extreme in her reticences, under other circumstances or at other times, may be extreme in her abandonment. Not that her modesty is an artificial garment, which she throws off or on at will. It is organic, but like the snail's shell, it sometimes forms an impenetrable covering, and sometimes glides off almost altogether. 
A man's modesty is more rigid, with little tendency to deviate toward either extreme. Thus it is that, when uninstructed, a man is apt to be impatient with a woman's reticences, and yet shocked at her abandonments. The significance of our inquiry becomes greater when we reflect that to the reticences of sexual modesty, in their progression, expansion, and complication, we largely owe not only the refinement and development of the sexual emotions, la pudier, as Guiau remarked, a civilisée l'amour, but the subtle and pervading part which the sexual instinct has played in the evolution of all human culture. It is certain that very much of what is best in religion, art, and life, remarks Stanley Hall and Allen, owes its charm to the progressively widening irradiation of sexual feeling. Perhaps the reluctance of the female, first long circuited the exquisite sensations connected with sexual organs, and acts to the antics of animal and human courtship, while restraint had the physiological function of developing the colors, plumes, excessive activity, and exuberant life of the pairing season. To keep certain parts of the body covered, irradiated the sense of beauty to eyes, hair, face, complexion, dress, form, etc., while many savage dances, costumes, and postures are irradiations of the sexual act. Thus reticence, concealment, and restraint are among the prime conditions of religion and human culture. Groves attributes the deepening of the conjugal relation among birds to the circumstance that the male seeks to overcome the reticence of the female by the display of his charms and abilities. And in the human world, he continues, it is the same, without the modest reserve of the woman that must, in most cases, be overcome by lovable qualities. The sexual relationship would, with difficulty, find a singer who would extol in love the highest movements of the human soul. I have not, however, been able to find that the subject of modesty has been treated in any comprehensive way by psychologists. Though valuable facts and suggestions bearing on the sexual emotions, on disgust, the origins of tattooing, on ornament and clothing, have been brought forward by physiologists, psychologists, and ethnographists. Few or no attempts appear to have been made to reach a general synthetic statement of these facts and suggestions. It is true that a great many unreliable, slight, and fragmentary efforts have been made to ascertain the constitution or basis of this emotion. Many psychologists have regarded modesty simply as the result of clothing. This view is overturned by the well-ascertained fact that many races which go absolutely naked possess a highly developed sense of modesty. These writers have not realized that physiological modesty is earlier in appearance, and more fundamental, than anatomical modesty. A partial contribution to the analysis of modesty has been made by Professor James, who, with his usual insight and lucidity, has set forth certain of these characteristics, especially the element due to the application to ourselves of judgments primarily passed upon our mates. Guyao, in a very brief discussion of modesty, realized its great significance and touched on most of its chief elements. Westermark again, followed by Gross, has very ably and convincingly set forth certain factors in the origin of ornament and clothing, a subject which many writers imagine to cover the whole field of modesty. More recently, Ribot, in his work on the emotions, 
has vaguely outlined most of the factors of modesty, but has not developed a coherent view of their origins and relationships. Since the present study first appeared, Hohenemesser, who considers that my analysis of modesty is unsatisfactory, has made a notable attempt to define the psychological mechanism of shame. He regards shame as a general psychophysical phenomenon, a definite tension of the whole soul, with an emotion superadded. The state of shame consists in a certain psychic lameness or inhibition, sometimes accompanied by physical phenomena of paralysis, such as sinking the head and inability to meet the eye. It is a special case of lip psychic stasis or damming up, psychicus down, always produced when the psychic activities are at the same time drawn in two or more different directions. In shame there is always something present in consciousness, which conflicts with the rest of the personality, and cannot be brought into harmony with it, which cannot be brought, that is, into moral, not logical, relationship with it. A young man in love with a girl is ashamed when told that he is in love, because his reverence for one whom he regards as a higher being cannot be brought into relationship with his own lower personality. A child in the same way feels shame in approaching a big grown-up person who seems a higher sort of being. Sometimes, likewise, we feel shame in approaching a stranger, for a new person tends to seem higher and more interesting than ourselves. It is not so in approaching a new natural phenomenon, because we do not compare it with ourselves. Another kind of shame is seen, when this mental contest is lower than our personality, and on this account in conflict with it, as when we are ashamed of sexual thoughts. Sexual ideas tend to evoke shame, Hohen Messer remarks, because they so easily tend to pass into sexual feelings, when they do not so pass, as in scientific discussions, they do not evoke shame. It will be seen that this discussion of modesty is highly generalized and abstracted. It deals simply with the formal mechanism of the process. Hohen Messer admits that fear is a part of the psychic stasis, and I have sought to show that modesty is a complexus of fears. We may very well accept the conception of psychic stasis at the outset. The analysis of modesty is still to be carried very much further. End of the Evolution of Modesty, Part 1, Section 1